Good morning. My name is Alex, and I serve as lead pastor here at Corey, and I want to welcome you. I want to add my word of welcome to what Alyssa said at the beginning of the service. You made it. Well done. So over the past 12 weeks, we have seen how the Apostles' Creed gives us this amazing summary of what the Bible teaches about Christian faith. And as we've journeyed through the creed, some of you have told me that you read the creed differently now, that it has in a way come alive for you, that even when we say it together, you're able to do that as a prayer and not just as a proclamation. And it's been really encouraging for me to hear that. The creed is more than a statement of belief. It is an act of worship. And it also, as we've talked about in past weeks, it tells a story. And the story it tells has a certain shape to it. It starts in heaven with God the Father Almighty who created the universe. It starts with a big picture, God transcendent and distant, unlike us, beyond us. And then the creed starts to flow down. It descends as God comes close to us in Jesus Christ. It also descends into his suffering. And then it rises with the resurrection and the ascension. The story of Jesus is the longest part of the creed. More recently, over the past four weeks, we've followed belief in the Holy Spirit into the church and the forgiveness of sins. And I've found this final part of the creed to be richer than I ever realized before. So from believing and trusting in the Holy Spirit to believing in the Holy Church, to being part of the communion of saints, saints means holy ones, God seems determined in these lines of the creed to make us more like him, to make us holy in spite of ourselves. And last week, we looked at one of the key ways he does that through the forgiveness of sins. So this morning, we come to the end of the Apostles' Creed where we say, I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. So we've read the creed, we've heard it read, we've said it together different ways over the weeks we've been looking at it. Today, I'm going to invite you to do uh, what we normally do when the Apostles' Creed is part of our service, and that is to stand with me, please. And if you are comfortable saying it, if you can genuinely say it, then I invite you to say it with me. Let's say it together now. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. So on Friday morning, my physiotherapist asked me what my plans were for the rest of the day. I said, well, I have a sermon to write. 
He knows I'm a pastor. And when I told him that, he didn't seem too alarmed, for which I was grateful. So he asked me, what's a sermon? I paused. Do we have time for the long answer? (laughs) No, we didn't. So I explained to him that a sermon is teaching that helps people understand a part of the Bible. And I thought about telling him what I was preaching on this morning, but it would have taken longer than the short time we had together. Also, what we're looking at today in the Creed is hard to wrap your head around. On the one hand, last week we had forgiveness, a very ordinary thing that people like to hear about. It's hard to do, but people know what it is and can embrace forgiveness. On the other hand, this week we have the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting, and these are extraordinary things that seem strange to most people and hard to understand. But they are so very central to who God is and who we are in relationship to him as we receive the abundant life that he gives us and as we find our hope in Christ alone. So this brings us to the end not just the end of the creed. As Christians, we believe that all of history has an end, has a purpose, a destination, right? We cycle through seasons. They recur annually. Fall, we thought it was fall. Winter, spring, summer. But Christian history, our destination as believers, has an end, a goal. And Jesus will return one day. And we believe, as the Bible teaches, that God will then restore the world to the way he meant it to be. He will put things right. And the best picture we have in the Bible of that bright future, I think, is in Revelation 21 and 22. So if this resurrection of the body part of the creed intrigues you, and you want to get into that more deeply, then you're going to need to look at 1 Corinthians 15. And we talked about that chapter extensively at the end of our series on 1 Corinthians in the spring and summer. So if you want to go back uh, and look at that at the end of June, it's there for you. But we're going to turn to Revelation in a moment, so let's pray before we do that. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you plant hope in our hearts. You point us to Jesus always, and as we read from the word today, we pray that you would renew our hope in you, that you would reason with us, argue with us, convince us in whatever circumstance we're struggling with right now, in our doubt, in our despair, whatever it may be, lead us back to your hope. Show us more of Jesus this morning, we pray. Amen. So Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 to 6. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look! God's dwelling is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. 
There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. And then from Revelation 22, reading verses 1 to 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. So the book of Revelation stands out from the rest of the New Testament. It's this vision that God gave the Apostle John, who wrote it. In the Gospels, these life stories of Jesus, we get events. We get history. What happened to Jesus? In the epistles, letters often written by Paul, but also by others, you get theology and practice interpretation of what the life, death, and resurrection of Christ means and how the church should live it out. But the book of Revelation is different. It's what they call apocalyptic literature, and that means you get a vision. You get a picture, and it's not what you expect. The very first word of this book is apocalypsis, which simply means revelation. But there's no question that apocalyptic literature is hard to understand. At times, it doesn't seem to make sense at all. Look at the images we have here in what we just read. There's a city, but it's dressed like a bride. There's a throne, but a lamb sits on it. So apocalyptic defies the categories we may have in our minds. Sometimes people treat the book of Revelation like a secret code that needs to be cracked. But that is really not the best way to understand it. And often people project their own agendas onto Revelation as they're treating it that way. We need to start with its history. So the Apostle John wrote Revelation at the end of the first century, around 90 AD. At that point, the Roman emperor Domitian was about, about to mount the worst persecution of Christians the world had ever seen up to that point. John had a revelation, and he saw this coming. And so in his book, he sets out to prepare followers of Jesus for the storm that lay ahead of them. Revelation is all about hope. It's about a hope that can sustain you through the worst times of your life, when you lose everything, so we're going to explore this idea of Christian hope today. 
by looking at one big idea related to it and two overlapping images that we found in the passages we just read. The first thing about Christian hope is that it's already not yet. It has already come in Jesus, but it's not yet fulfilled. So already not yet. The second thing we're going to look at is this picture of a city. Christian hope somehow comes to us in the form of a city. And the third thing is that Christian hope is like a wedding. So already not yet, city and wedding. In verse 4 of the first reading we had this morning, John paints this powerful picture of tears being wiped away, of death, mourning, and sorrow being no more. But did you notice that it's all in the future tense here? So it says, he will wipe away every tear. There will be no more death in the future. But then in the very next verse, in verse 5, the one seated on the throne says, I am making everything new. Present tense, present continuous. So there's hope for the future, but there's also something happening right now. And this is what biblical scholars and theologians sometimes call the already not yet. So as a way of remembering this, we're going to divide up into teams. There's going to be an already team and a not yet team. Sorry for the not yet team. So everyone from this middle aisle in that direction is already. Not yet on the other side. And if you're at home, everybody north of the river is already and everybody south of the river is not yet. Hopefully you know where you are in relation to the river. So let's practice that. When I raise this hand, I want the already team to say already together. Okay? Already. It's pretty good. Again. Already. All right. You're not yet, but you can do it. Not yet. Not yet. Already. Not yet. Okay, this is going to help us get this idea in our heads, I hope. So if we look at the first verse of chapter 22... Do you see where this new life is coming from? This new life that leads incredibly to the healing of the world, the healing of all the nations. Well, it flows right from the throne. That is the source of the healing. And so when you bring your life under the lordship of Christ, when you acknowledge that he is on the throne and you are not, any part of your life, your relationships, the plans you have for the future, your studies, your career, your business, there will be healing for you in these things. It's happening, but it won't be finished until later. You see where I'm going with this. So when I was a student at Regent College in Vancouver, I had an amazing New Testament professor named Gordon Fee. And he died a couple of weeks ago, and I've been trying to work him into a sermon. And I guess that's a way of honoring him. He was an amazing teacher. All of us, I think, could probably name one or two teachers we've had in our lifetime, maybe more, who had an influence on us, who made a difference. Gordon Fee would weep in class as he was lecturing us on the New Testament. He would shout, 
he would jump around, and then he would weep some more. And he was the one who introduced many of us to this idea of... And it really helped me, not just intellectually to understand God's kingdom and what Christianity means, but it helped me pastorally too. It helped me to understand disappointments, frustrations in my own life. So Dr. Fee would talk about the spectrum. He would say that Pentecostals, and he was one of them, were at a certain end of the spectrum. Guess which one? Say it. All right. He said that Pentecostals were at the already end of the spectrum. They loved the resurrection, the victory. They wanted to claim the promises of Jesus. So all of you who are on the already team, smile. Raise your hands. Come on. <laughs> there we go. That's, that's the picture over there. And then he said Presbyterians were at the not yet end of the spectrum. <laughs> they were all about the cross, the reality of sin the need to repent and to obey and to trust in God and his sovereign will. And I was trying to think of what would symbolize a Presbyterian. It's probably not raising your hands. So give me your best frown. (laughs) Come on, you can do better than that. There we go, I'm seeing some frowns, thank you. The gospel is not one or the other of these things. The gospel is both already and not yet. And we need both because both are true. And this professor of mine, Dr. Fee, would pound this into us week after week. The kingdom of Jesus Christ has come, but it is not yet fulfilled. So just... Let me say that if you don't know what a Presbyterian is or a Pentecostal is, that's fine. Or if you're tempted to move where you're sitting in the room right now, don't, because this isn't really about denominations. This is about attitudes. This is about how we view the world and our understanding of Christianity. And this may all seem pretty abstract to you, but I think it's highly practical. So take the example of sickness. Some of us at court right have family or friends who are sick right now. How do you deal with that? Do you accept that this person in your life is sick and learn to live with it? Or do you research their sickness? Do you go to doctor after doctor seeking for the latest treatment, the best treatment, and praying to God the whole time for healing? Well, as a Christian, you could be realistic and accept that God's kingdom has not yet come, that we must all suffer, and so not expect God necessarily to do much this side of heaven. Except that can't be right because he is he's already making all things new. We saw that. Or another approach you could take would be to claim God's healing to claim God's healing promises to the point where if there's ever sickness in someone's life, you'll pray it away because Jesus wants everyone to be well. Which runs the risk of people getting the idea that all your problems should go away if you're a Christian. Or worse, much worse, that it's your fault 
if you're not healed because you didn't have enough faith. And that is a lie of the devil. That is not something we should ever believe. And if that's the case, if you are claiming those promises, if you are rushing ahead of Jesus in a way, you need more of the... Let's try that again for the Presbyterians among us. You're going to need more of the not yet. Because we see also in Revelation 21 that the old order of things has not yet passed away. Jesus tells us that we will have trouble and there is still death. There is still pain and sorrow all around us. The gospel goes lower than any human cynicism and it reaches higher than any human optimism. So I may be physically sick, but the Bible takes you even lower in teaching you what your dilemma is because it says that you're spiritually sick too. It says that you're sinful and broken all the way through, and the world itself is under a curse that only the death of Jesus at the cross can break. But then Christian hope goes way higher too. I'm not waiting on science and medicine for some kind of short-term fix or respite from my sickness. I won't just get better, but I'm going to be a whole new person, healed through and through. I will have a new body thanks to the resurrection of Jesus, a body that will never die. And at the end of history, when Jesus returns, that promise will be fulfilled. If you say, like a good Pentecostal, I know I'm going to be healed, or if you say, like a good Presbyterian, I'll probably never be healed, then your heart is still in this world, and you need the hope of knowing God has prepared a place for you in that future city. If you know Jesus was broken for you, that he gave his life for you, if your hope is in the gospel, then like Jesus, you will be able to say, not my will, but your will be done, Father. Your heart and your hope have been taken out of the world at that point and reside now in that holy city. So Christian hope is what? And it's real, realistic enough to handle anything the world throws at you, but it's also visionary enough to handle anything and to go beyond it. The second thing we learn about Christian hope here in Revelation is that it comes in the form of a city. So what is the basic fact of a city? How would you define the word city? People, right? And city, by definition means lots of people. I looked it up. Lots of people living close together. The holy city of Revelation 21 is just that. It's us. It's the people. And the everlasting life that's pictured here will be urban. Urban in the best possible way. Dispel from your mind any associations you might have. The Bible begins in a garden and it ends in a city. It begins in Genesis with the Garden of Eden. It ends here in what we read with a holy city. And so in our future, we don't get wings in heaven. We don't get our very own cloud to float around on. No, we join together with others in a city of perfect harmony, harmony with God and harmony with each other, a city like we never imagined. And it's a city that comes down to earth. 
God's salvation is not us being saved out of the world into heaven. God's salvation is a new heaven and a new earth. It's the earth restored, and so we get the resurrection of the body, God's greatest blessing, endorsement of the physical. God wants to show us that he's out to redeem everything that's physical, not to take us away from it. We know that great cities are full of people, and the cities that I've lived in, Toronto and Vancouver and now Guelph, have people in them from all over the world, people speaking so many different languages. These cities and our experience of them are in a way a glimpse of heaven, but not yet what the holy city will be like. Now, I'm a Guelph boy and have been for it's my 13th year in Guelph, but sometimes I confess I still miss Toronto. And then my wife, Judith, who works in Toronto, reminds me of certain things about Toronto. Or I have to drive there myself for a meeting or for whatever. And you know, with each kilometer that passes on the 401, I become less and less of a Christian. Does that, <laughs> does that happen to you too? I guess I'm already there. Some of you, some of you are so much holier than me, I know. So we do not yet have cities that resemble this one, this picture for us in Revelation 21. And where does that leave us? Do we simply wait? No, we are called as followers of Jesus to get involved in God's reality, his kingdom breaking through into our cities, our already cities, our cities now. And so for us at Courtright, that's an active, creative, kingdom-engaged way of looking at the city and commitment to seeing change in the city. We are here, God has called us together to follow his cue, to wipe away every tear, to bring his healing and his wholeness, to share his love and to nurture forgiveness, reconciliation, and revival. So this has been an eventful fall for us as a church. We've made some big decisions, and for most of this year, we've also been working on a new vision for us as a congregation, being a church that is for others. Not for ourselves, which seems to be the default position of humankind, but for others. Not judging or distancing ourselves from others, but a congregation that is for others in the way that Jesus loves other people and is for other people. How would you say that you are part of God's kingdom coming in the city of Guelph? When you read those lines from Revelation 21 about every tear being wiped away, sorrow ending, healing coming, where does that show up in your life? How are you coming alongside people who are hurting, people who are in trouble with the good news of what Jesus promises. And as you reflect on that, as you pray about that, I hope that together we are going to discern God's will for our congregation in that as we embrace a new vision, as we step out in faith. The third image of Christian hope we have here in Revelation is of a wedding dress. Almost exactly a month ago, I married Athena Dunk and Caleb Cooch. 
And I was reminded, I hadn't done a wedding for a while, I was reminded that everybody wants a good seat at a wedding. And who do you want to see? Well, the couple who are getting married, of course, and the bride, most of all. You can think of a wedding day as like a transformation. Everybody dresses up, and nothing is more precious than the moment when the bride and groom meet at the front of the church. Everybody leans in, right, when the bride appears and walks down the center aisle. And Athena was worth the wait. Caleb would say that. Everything else is forgotten in the beauty of that encounter. And later on in the wedding ceremony, you get glimpses of the hard stuff, the reality of marriage. The vows touch on that, right? For richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. And those words suggest more of the reality of the ups and downs of a marriage. But the bride's wedding dress covers all of that on the wedding day itself. Here in Revelation 21, the people of God are described as like a city in a dress. As a city, we're together in all our diversity and density, and we're a holy city, a new Jerusalem. And all of that is made possible, and only made possible, thanks to the one who waits for us as we come down the aisle, and that is Jesus. As the bride of Christ, and that's what the church is called elsewhere in the New Testament, we are united to Christ in a kind of mystic, sweet communion. And in our resurrection bodies, in the life everlasting, we will be face-to-face with him and God the Father and God the Spirit. We are not yet there, but we already have the Holy Spirit who seals us with God's promises and who reminds us, is constantly reminding us that Christ is in us and that he is the hope of glory. So this is what? And we're getting the picture now, this already not yet tandem. It will be on heaven as it is, it will be on earth as it is in heaven. And we know that right here and now, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. And we have the new city to look forward to. In its streets, we will have bodies, resurrection bodies, because God is making everything new, restoring the world. And we will have the joy of being face-to-face with Jesus, the love of our life, and among the communion of the saints. I want to close this morning with a picture that's given to us of this life everlasting by one of the great leaders and teachers of the church, St. Augustine. It seems like a fitting benediction on this series that we've spent working our way through the Apostles' Creed. St. Augustine writes, describing this final section of the Creed, All shall be amen and alleluia. We shall rest and we shall see. We shall see and we shall know. We shall know and we shall love. We shall love and we shall praise. Behold our end, which is no end. 
Thanks be to God. We're going to shift gears now, and I'm going to invite Dan Lavero up. And why don't we pray, actually, um, as part of that shifting of the gears? It feels to me like that's a good thing to do. Dear God, um, we thank you for the promise of what is not yet fulfilled. And Jesus, we thank you that you are already here among us. You call the church your body. And it's thanks to you with us that we have the hope of living up to what you call us to. And I pray that you would fill our hearts and our minds with a picture of who you are and of these things that we've read of today, of the resurrection of the body, of the life everlasting. You have planted eternity in our hearts. We know that death is defeated through you, Lord Jesus, and so we praise you. Amen.